Can we hear, can you play the music for us at the start of it? Because the music just puts me in the mood. The music you're da, 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 That's not your music. That's not the podcast music. You have podcast music? Don't want to be song? an American idiot. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. I am Matt Zuckerman, assistant professor at the University of Colorado. I'm Juliana Wilson, also assistant professor at the University of Colorado. I'm Kenan Hurd. I'm the section chief of medical toxicology and pharmacology at the University of Colorado. I'm Risa Lewis. I direct the program in point-of-care ultrasound, associate professor at the University of Colorado, all of us in the Department of Emergency Medicine. And I was listening, actually, to uh, another podcast the other day, a 99% Invisible podcast with Roman Mars, which is a great name. And they were talking about the origins of the stethoscope and how before the stethoscope, you would want to know as a physician what was going on inside your patient's body. And you couldn't. Um, And then one day, a smart young physician figured out that if he rolled up a sheet of paper, he could put it on someone's chest and hear their heart and hear their lungs and improve their diagnosis. And I think the story of medicine is a story of changing technologies and how that changes our diagnosis and our treatments. And on this podcast, we often talk about overdoses and medications and treatments. But what I'm excited about is the way that we're changing our diagnostic approach to tox patients and overdose patients. And so today, the, the topic that, that you know, I'm looking forward to is, is ever since Risa has been here, she's been telling me how I, I can use ultrasound to improve my care of the poison patient. And I, as you know, am, am old uh, and uh, ultrasound is, is somewhat of a scary thing to me. Uh, although I'm starting to learn to use it, and it, and it has been a part of my practice, but in in discussions, it sounds like that there's there's certainly a potential role for this. And we talked about car, you know calcium channel blockers as sort of the the prototype, and calcium channel blockers, as as fans of the Talks Now podcast will know, cause two different things that both affect the cardio and the vascular system. So they cause decreased myocardial function, and then they also cause vasodilatation. And since both of those lead to hypotension, we, we are often trying to sort out what the major effect that we're seeing. And as you know, there've been a couple of recent publications and a little bit of debate in the toxicology world about the use of vasopressors or inotrophs, such as epinephrine, high-dose uh, epinephrine or norepinephrine, or the use of the more metabolic-based therapies like insulin and glucose, trying to restore restore myocardial function. So uh, what I'm hoping our ultrasonography enthusiast colleague, uh, colleagues can, can help me with is, is a patient presents after overdosing on a calcium channel blocker, they're hypotensive, and I'm trying to decide, do I want to flog or do I want to feed the heart? To flog or to feed? Well, it's a cold or a fever, right? That's what you, you start with a cold and you feed a <laughs> fever. And uh, yeah, and uh, so a lot of people probably already know this, but when we're talking about the types of calcium channel blockers, we often divide them into the dihydropyridines and all the others, which we just call the non-dihydropyridines. And, and Kenan, if you were going to overdose on a calcium channel blocker, which one would you choose? Uh, you know, I, I actually think that that I'm going to throw you a little curve, and I would go with diltiazem because I think I think that when I've treated them, I found the diltiazem is actually a little bit harder to treat than than the verapamil's. Okay, all right, yeah, it is a curveball. Yeah, I would just because verapamil just it kills a lot of people. Epidemiologic, I believe the the studies suggest that the uh, non dihydropyridines are very dangerous. Yeah, there are definitely one of those things that that if you want to get a toxicologist's attention, those are the those are the words to drop. 
But of course, as we know, when you overdose, the dihydropyridines even can be kind of nasty. And there's certainly plenty of reports out there of people, you know, getting very sick and uh, and requiring multiple, you know, types of therapies to to recover from their dihydropyridine ingestion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we talked about doing some uh, epidemiologic stuff. So I'll mention some of the stats just because. Yeah. Um, over a five-year period, uh, there were uh, 12 million poisonings in the U.S. Uh, with more than 7,000 deaths. And the cardiovascular drugs are involved in almost uh, a half a million of the poisonings and accounted for nearly 18% of the overall fatalities. So even though a lot of the poisonings we see tend to be analgesics or psychotropics, if you really want to kill yourself, taking a cardioactive medication is has a very high fatality rate, especially given the majority of overdoses we see for other medications and drugs do fine with supportive care. And specifically for calcium channel blockers out of that group, they're especially lethal with more than 50,000 cases reported over five years. And... Um, 289 cases resulting in major effects and more than 100 deaths. So definitely um, a disproportionate amount of deaths coming from calcium channel blockers. And I think what Kenan kind of alluded to is the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers can affect uh, cardiac output, uh, both chronotropy and inotropy, uh, whereas the dihydropyridines often in normal doses tend to uh, have more effects on the vasodilatory end. So typically if I took a bunch of amlodipine, my pressure might drop, but I'd get a reflex tachycardia and I'd probably do okay. But in an overdose, you may still lose that reflex. And, and we see the same thing with the verapamil. I mean, certainly verapamil has a lot of cardiotonic effects, but it also is a vasodilator, pretty potent vasodilator in overdose. Yeah, as is true. Everything, when anyone ever tells you that anything is receptor selective, uh, rules go out the door when they take too much. So yeah, so these people come in and they, they can get very sick and they can die. And actually, I have a different question than your question, because I feel like when they come in and they're sick, that's one thing. But I feel like the biggest thing in toxicology is coming in and knowing they're going to get sick before they're obviously sick. For me, it's really easy when I get the sicky, but it's if I could look inside and know exactly what was going on, if I could swan every patient that comes in with a cardioactive overdose, uh, I would have so much information. So uh, yeah, so we're going to actually, um, to talk about these cases, we're actually going to steal some cases from um, a tox case report called Extracorporeal Albumin Dialysis in Three Cases of Acute Calcium Channel Blocker Poisoning with Life-Threatening Refractory Cardiogenic Shock, which is a really long way of saying... Uh, using uh, albumin in some three three people who are really sick with calcium channel blocker overdose. And um, this is from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, June 2012. And in our show notes, uh, we'll post links to these papers. In case one, uh, there was a 55-year-old woman admitted to the ED for shock four hours after the ingestion of 8.4 grams of sustained-release diltiazem in a suicide attempt. Maybe that's why Dr. Hertz said diltiazem before. And they came in hypotensive with a pressure of 45 over 24 and oliguria, which is never a good sign. Uh, got tubed um, and vented, got gastric lavage and activated charcoal, were bradycardic with a rate of 56 and first degree atrioventricular block. So always look at your PR interval, even though some of us skip it. And then despite seven liters of fluid and repeat dosing of calcium gluconate, 10 grams, and glucagon, 9 milligrams, uh, hypotension persisted and rapidly became refractory to increasing doses of um, adrenergic ag agonists, including norepi and epi. So what did they do? They did an echo. 
Is that what you would do, Dr. Lewis? Would you do an echo? Uh, it depends on the patient presentation, but if we were sort of subscribing to the concept of undifferentiated hypotension, roll the ultrasound to the bedside and approach heart-lung IVC, then absolutely yes. So when you say undifferentiated, though, I mean, I think we know why they're, they're hypotensive in the sense that they, they took an overdose. But I think that the, the question I always have is, is it because they have no squeeze or is it because they have no vascular resistance? And right. how can ultrasound help me with that? So that's the clarification, not undifferentiated because of etiology, undifferentiated because of organ process. Yeah. 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 No, just undifferentiated. I was going to say pathophysiology is what you're looking for. But why does, and, and it matters, right? Because it matters because mm -hmm. of treatment. Your treatment. Yeah. Which pressure choice you're going to use, fluids, things like that. Okay. Just to dissuade the people that are listening and thinking there's no way that ultrasound is going to help me. I'm not a subject matter expert. I didn't do a fellowship. We're not asking you to utilize different questions that you use for the basics. So you're still, when you're imaging the heart, you're asking that question, is there systolic function of the left ventricle, yes or no? Does it look like good ejection fraction, good pump of that LV, yes or no? And there are different ways to measure that. There's just visual visualization, just you know, seeing how well it's pumping in general. Or you could do something like an EPSS you're looking to see is there fluid around the heart. You're looking at the global contractivity. So you're looking at all four chambers and seeing how they're beating and see how they're moving. Uh, if you do have a little bit more attuned eye, you can look to see if there's any wall motion abnormality and where, where that wall motion abnormality is. And then when you do the lungs, you're looking for sliding. You're looking for fluid. That fluid can manifest as beelines. That fluid can manifest in the pleural spaces as, as pleural fluid above the diaphragm. And then finally with the IVC, uh, a lot of the literature is still not really panned out to tell us exactly what those RA pressures are, but you can certainly look at the IVC and see if the walls are kissing, if they're touching because of volume depletion, or if there's very little movement with respirations because of plethora, which is suggesting increased pressures. Now, if your patient is intubated versus not intubated, that can make the interpretation of the IVC a little different, and in fact, some suggest reversed. But the bottom line is we're not asking you to do extra measurements, to learn new software packages. We really still want you to ask yourself the same questions that point of care ultrasound does. And that's that's a great question, right? Because if you do have the undifferentiated hypotensive calcium channel blocker overdose patient in front of you, so if it was more of a vasodilatory effect, uh, say that they maybe overdosed more on a dihydropyridine or more on amlodipine, what would, what would you see versus if they had more of a cardiac depressant um, overdose? Yeah, so if you were looking at someone who overdosed on, say, diltiazem, um, you might see those vasodilatory effects depending on, you know, when they overdosed and when those effects take place, and you might see that reduced ejection fraction. Whereas, an, like amlodipine, you may see um, more significant pulmonary edema without the cardiogenic shock that they might have. So you might see B-lines, increased B-lines, pleural effusions, um, those kinds of things. Um, IVC, I'm not as clear as like what you'd see as far as amlodipine. Um, it might be dilated, it might not be. Um, for cardiogenic shock, you would expect to, to see a dilated IVC, um, a plethoric IVC. Those are things you would sort of expect to see with each one. And I don't think we're certainly at the point of knowing, well, if it's this kind of calcium blocker, 
uh, calcium channel blocker, this is what you're going to find. And if it's that kind, you're going to see this. It's more just seeing like, are you seeing the pump of the heart um, and is ejection fraction down and therefore it's looking more like cardiogenic shock or is it that non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, in which case you're going to see those findings in the lungs that we just mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. So you might reach for something with more beta agonistic effects if you're getting more of a cardiac depressant. Um, and certainly everyone's favorite HIE uh, for calcium channel blockers in terms of increasing the output versus if it's more vasodilatory, you might want something with more alpha effects. Yeah, or certainly something, at least something mixed. I mean, if you're going to, I think most of us are probably hesitant to say we'd use a pure vasopressor uh, like phenylephrine because then you're making the heart work harder to uh, to pump, but on the other hand, I certainly if I if I've got someone who's got some major vasodilatory effects and they're hypotensive, I'm going to look for something like norepinephrine or epinephrine rather than a pure beta agonist like maybe uh, isoproteranol. No, that makes um that makes total sense. And we know that also with some of the vasodilatory effects, you can um, sort of get this non cardio even non cardiogenic pulmonary edema even though cardiac output drops, and so you're going to increase the pulmonary pressures and get almost like a cardiogenic pulmonary edema, but because of the vasodilatation, you can see increased forward flow to the pulmonary capillaries, and that can increase non-cardiogenic, risk of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema in these patients. So um, you want to know if they're fluid overloaded, and I guess looking for those um, curly B lines on uh, your pulmonary ultrasound might give you a sense for that. Kenan, you liked the different cases because they had different findings, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, both the cases that, or all three of the cases that you mentioned in that described pretty uh, consistently global hypokinesis and global um, dysfunction, ventricular dysfunction. Whereas uh, we were, you know, other cases, um, we've seen patients who are actually hyperdynamic. And in those cases, you know, you can at least hypothesize that the driving force for their hypotension is probably more of a vasodilatory effect than, than uh, ventricular dysfunction. And in that case, you really are thinking, well, if the myocardium is working pretty well, then a therapy like insulin euglycemia, which is meant to improve myocardial metabolism probably isn't going to have a, a ton of effect. And maybe then you're looking at something like more of an epinephrine or um, even something, you know, people have started talking about methylene blue as a pure um, vasoconstrictor to try and improve basically systemic resistance and, and perfusion and critical organ perfusion that way. Yeah. And the methylene blue kind of theorized as a nitric oxide sort of scavenger. So it'll um, decrease some of the vasodilatory effects. And, uh, and actually, that you bring up a good point, too, and that's one of the things. We're in a young person who overdoses on a calcium channel blocker and gets that vasodilatory effect. They've probably got some reserve, and so their hyperdynamic heart might get them through it, whereas an older person who doesn't have that reserve might do a lot worse. Or what we know is, even though we talk about overdosing on vasodilatory calcium channel blocker not being that big a deal, once you co-ingest that with, say, a beta blocker or DIG, uh, any kind of rate controlling agent and you decrease the ability of the heart to compensate, then um, the mortality and the morbidity significantly increase. So, so the patient that isn't supposed to have um, decreased cardiac activity or is supposed to get a rebound tachycardia that doesn't, I guess, looking at them and knowing that ahead of time. Well, and certainly even even further, if they if you can consider that a patient maybe who has some uh, coronary artery disease and you vasodilate them, they're going to lose coronary perfusion pressure. And once you start losing coronary perfusion pressure, then you're uh, giving the heart a double hit because you've got a negative inotropic drug on board, but you also have ischemia from the 
stenosis and just decreased blood flow. Well, one thing I was just going to say in general, I think we forget as providers that you can repeat your ultrasound exam. If you can't explain what's happening with your patient in general, and then we can get to the specifics of the calcium channel overdose patient, you know, just repeat and, and confirm what you're seeing, see what's changed. And can you bill for the second exam? Uh, there, <laughs> because we know that's the most important in our patient-centered care. There actually is a specific suffix that you add for a repeat examination. There's actually one for repeat examination, same provider, repeat examination, different provider. Is there one so, for better provider? <laughs> <laughs> if you're handing it off to Canon, there would be a different suffix. There would be lots of suffixes for that. <laughs> so, I, But I think that's an interesting point uh, because we're – you know, we are often trying something and, and then, you know, the calcium channel blockers are sort of the ultimate, all right, let's throw everything at the kitchen sink at them. And it, I, I like the idea of saying, okay, well, I'm going to try, put them on an epinephrine drip and let's see how they respond. And now I'll start insulin and glucose and I can go back and look at that mm -hmm. uh, ventricular function and see, are things getting better? Are things about the same? Uh, and if they're responding, then figure out how to best tailor my therapies rather than this sort of uh, let's just throw everything in the soup. You know, I mean, when we used to send these folks upstairs, they'd have six different drips going and we never knew which one was actually the one that, that was working or whether they all were really needed. That's a really good point. I think that's one of the things I would have liked to have seen in all these case reports is that they had an initial ultrasound, but there were never follow-ups, right? There was maybe a follow-up x-ray that showed something different, but there was never follow-up like how did the heart look 24 hours later? Like how did the lungs look 24 hours later? Um, just to show, you know, what were the differences that were that were being made and what was the changes that were really taking effect. And I think what this hints at um, is we started everything as a blood pressure focused modality. The blood pressure goes down, what are the vital signs? And I think that um, pediatricians do a great job of looking at cap refill. And I think that nowadays everyone has become enamored with lactate, which is sort of a sign of microperfusion, of end organ perfusion. And at the end of the day, honestly, that I, I wasn't kidding, that oliguria is not reassuring. That's a sign of end organ dysfunction. And I like the ultrasound as uh, something else that gets at um, organ function without waiting for the systolic to tank and without waiting for the heart rate to bump 20 points. I think one credible scenario is it's after hours, uh, bedside tech is not available, your patient is sick and you want to call cardiology or you want to admit someone to a unit. If you have a workflow where you're able to capture video clips, have those wirelessly transmit to your EHR, such as what we've just initiated and we're fine-tuning here, your consultant at home can open Epic, click on your images, and actually view your video clips. And we found that to be game-changing with some of our consultants, the fact that they can open it up from their call room, from their home, and be like, oh, yeah, I do see that stone in the neck of the gallbladder. We're coming down. Yeah. And just a plug for all the naysayers out there that think, again, I didn't do a fellowship. I never learned ultrasound. I'm not at that point. I'll never be at that point. We really, really, really don't believe that. We really think that the more you look at normal, 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 you will recognize pattern recognition abnormal. And there's so many free online medical education resources to learn ultrasound that really it's accessible to you. Yeah. And so if you please send it to me. If you, if, you, if you perform a bedside ultrasound on the sick calcium channel blocker overdose uh, and you find something, send it out there and educate the world and, and, and I'll, I'll definitely retweet it and uh, follow you because I, I want to see that. Um, short of poisoning someone with a calcium channel blocker today, I don't think, uh, uh, I don't know how to speed that along. Yeah. And in, in our review of the literature, we 
go through quite a bit of the ultrasound literature, there are not a lot of case reports and certainly not a lot of more robust research literature in, in, in publication that has combined ultrasound with toxicological cases. So I think it's an opportunity for people that are looking for low-hanging fruit. <laughs> what, what do you call two toxicologists with an ultrasound machine? Right. A double-blind study. But um, uh, that's pretty good. Give the man some charcoal. I think he worked on that ahead of the show today. <laughs> He's pretty good. He does uh, He does stand up at all the talks, conferences. He'll be here all week. <laughs> exactly. Tip your server. Try the steak. So uh, we can walk through our case. Uh, so we're working our next shift at uh, your hospital. And you hope it's going to be an easy shift. Uh, but then uh, you get your first case and it's, let's go back to our 18-year-old female who comes in after a, a reported ingestion of grandma's meds. And uh, someone somewhere said there might have been some blood pressure medications and you're not, and the pressure is 80s over 50s and her heart rate's in the 60s. And so what do you do? Well, you know, Matt, since we're, since we're at ABEM General, we'd probably start with our ABCs. So I'm assuming she's awake and alert and talking. Uh, generally, I think what most of us would say is somebody like this usually looks surprisingly well, despite not having the numbers that we like, which we always talk about being due to the vasodilatation, maintaining uh, perfusion. You know, as long as the patients are relatively flat, they perfuse relatively well. Yep, she's lying down. She's on her cell phone. Yeah. Well, and this is, so this is exactly, okay, now I want to know what's going on in, in her heart. You know, is her heart working really hard to maintain that 80 over 70? Or is her heart, you know, is she really someone who, quote, lives in the, with a the blood pressure in the 80s just because she's a young, healthy 18-year-old? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so ABCs are good, which is good. And um, already half of the support staff has already blown this patient off because she's just another overdose who looks great. And they're like, we're going to send that acetaminophen level. We'll do it now, even though it's not four hours. And uh, we'll check a salicylate level. And uh, we'll call a psych, but she's going to be fine. She's on her cell phone. Uh, but Dr. Hurd wants to grab the ultrasound machine, which might be freewheeling or might be attached to a touchscreen in the room, depending on where you're practicing. Janina, where would you, where would you look first? Where would you put the probe first? Where would you recommend our listeners put the probe first? I'd probably start with the heart in this case. Yeah, take a look at how the uh, the ejection fraction, the left ventricular squeezing, um, and see what I see there. If something, if it looks like a pretty normal ejection fraction, um, then I'd probably move to the IVC because you're kind of right in that same spot and see what does her IVC look like. Is it full? Is it volume depleted? I can get a sense of the volume status of the patient. Um, and then I would probably move to the lungs and see, you know, what do her lungs look like? Are they normal looking, no evidence of any pulmonary edema, or is there some evidence of pulmonary edema? This sounds like pretty early into the case, so I might expect all of these things to be normal, normal or maybe not, um, depending on what I see. When, when you guys are eyeballing an ejection fraction as a, as a skilled sonographer, what, is there a view that you feel like gives you more information? Because I feel like other than trying to push the probe through the patient's back when I'm doing a sub-xiphoid view, I, I don't often get windows that that look like the ones that you show me? It's a great question. And I think one of the things, you know, we just think people know how to obtain these images and know how to do this. So as Juliana was going through, and I agree with everything she outlined, I would start parasternal long. And many of us start uh, with a parasternal long view, not a subxiphoid view, uh, because uh, in most people you can get a good image. And in the healthy non-intubated patient, who can follow commands, I have a very low threshold for turning them into left lateral decubitus position. And no matter what the body habit is, you can just get really crisp, nice views. And so left uh, parasternal long in, in, with the patient left lateral decubitus position is my, my first go-to. 
And that means I point the, the little thingy on the side of the probe towards their left foot, right? So it does depend on how you've been taught in terms of emergency medicine and cardiology view, but we sort of take a very Let's say you've been taught Switzerland, the right a very Switzerland neutral position on this. <laughs> and it's just important that you understand the orientation of the probe marker with the little dot on the screen. And you understand what you're looking at on the screen. Yeah. So you think that orientation yeah. is something that you're taught, it's not something you're born with. <laughs> Except for the Swiss. That okay. was worth it right there. That was worth driving over from your house right there. Oh, so okay. So as long as the orientation um, is is uh, consistent. Consistent and the the important. You don't want somebody going back and forth on their orientation. Like one day they're one way, the other day they're the yeah, other way. Yeah, like ideally someone's had a pretty uh, rigorous education program that they really understand what they're looking at, what chambers are, what which valves are on the screen. Okay, so you take her cell phone and you put it on the left side of of the stretcher, so she turns to the left side, and then and then you can look left lateral the cube. Okay. Um, and do you find that it's uh, it's easy for most people to pick out sort of a, a hyperdynamic versus a hypodynamic heart? So it's a little bit of, of pattern recognition, normal, 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 abnormal. But there's actually a study that came out of the University of Pennsylvania. I believe the people that they utilized as ones determining the ejection fraction were, were not novices. They were people that were experienced and fellowship trained. They, not surprisingly, were able to distinguish uh, ejection fraction pretty accurately. Uh, but when we work with our, uh, we'll call them uh, novice users, novice uh, trainees doing a first-year rotation, they can often look and tell you if the pump is normal or, or decreased. The hyperdynamic is a little bit more, I think, of a subjective call. You can see when the heart is pumping fast, but is it actually pushing lots and lots of blood out fast? That's kind of a little bit more difficult. So I think the big distinguisher is normal versus depressed ejection fraction. And then you were also talking about looking at the IVC. And what are you looking for on the IVC? Well, with the IVC, as Risa was talking about earlier, you're kind of looking for, you know, what is the either the volume status or the pressures. Um, so it, they can be it can be very collapsible, collapsible with the walls almost touching, and you know that they're probably volume depleted, or it can be very wide with no really respiratory variation, and that can tell you like either there's increased pressure or they're very volume overloaded. So either one of those can is kind of what you're looking at. And again, it's it's the same kind of thing. It's kind of extremes with the heart, right? Is it a normal function or is it a depressed function? It's kind of the same kind of thing you're looking at with the IVC. Is there volume deplete or is it volume overloaded? So, so okay. if, they're, if they're collapsing, then I'm thinking that I should be giving them fluids because like you said, they've been throwing up or they're, they're, they're volume down. Mm -hmm. But if they've got a big plump... Uh, IVC and there's no respiratory variation, it's not changing when they take a breath, then I'm probably just going to say, okay, now I can go on to my, my next therapy. Okay. So in this case, you would see the heart looks normal to you. It doesn't look different than most hearts you've seen. Maybe you can convince yourself because she's skinny and her heart isn't huge that maybe it's, it's maybe the ejection fraction's a little bit lower to normal, but you're not sure. And I definitely have done ultrasounds where I hedge. And then you look at her IVC and it's, it's not plump. Um, and it's it's almost kissing. So so you were talking about the intervention would be? I'd probably intervene and give fluids at that point um, as my first step, sort of supportive care. Yeah. So yeah. 
She's young. She's healthy. Mm-hmm. And then this is someone that, you know, you, then you can throw in the toxicology angle where you'd say, well, what's her blood sugar doing? Because if her blood sugar is going up, then, you know, you're starting to see drug effect. And then now I'm thinking, okay, let's start my metabolic therapies now so I can get ahead of the game as opposed to trying to play catch up once she does sort of start to, to go down the tubes. No, that's true. But I didn't mention she actually, she's on a little bit of metformin and she has a history of type 2 diabetes. It's not her fault. It's a family thing. Uh, and so her blood sugar is 190. Well, I, you know, I think we've all had enough experience now to know that, that we can handle insulin and glucose and we know how to treat hypoglycemia. So I would feel pretty comfortable saying, let's go ahead and, and at least start moving towards getting that insulin infusion ready. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, obviously, depending on where you are, it may take some discussions with your pharmacy and your specialist just to, to coordinate, you know, the, these types of infusions since we are dealing with higher doses than most people are comfortable with. Okay, so you'd push there. And I could see, I actually, if, if I were seeing this patient and I wasn't sure what she took or how she took it, and I thought she looked okay, I might hold off a tiny bit. I can see starting insulin right now, but I could see if her if her if she looks okay with a little bit of fluid if if she plumps up. But definitely, um, after I give her the fluid, I'd probably want to recheck an ultrasound. Sure. So there's no reason not to. No harm. No radiation. Uh, I was going to say also, if you actually want a little bit more accuracy and get some measurements regarding your ejection fraction, if you think I'm not really good at visualizing, there's a very, you know, first approach to making a measurement, and that's the E-point septal separation. Someone that's young and otherwise healthy who you do not expect to have any valvular abnormalities is a perfect person to measure your E-point septal separation. And again, that's a parasternal long view and you capture in M mode the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve and you actually can calculate one measurement and that one measurement can tell you normal ejection fraction or depressed ejection fraction. Okay. And definitely in our show notes, we'll put links to some of the images for this for capturing these because I know that um, uh, I always get really motivated when I hear about using ultrasound in a new way, but seeing is believing. And then I get to do it on people. So you've got her on some insulin. You gave her maybe one per kilo bolus and then started her on uh, one per kilo per hour maybe. Um, and yeah, as, as, as Kenan said, it can take you know 50 minutes, 45 minutes to see a really good effect from insulin. But you want to be watching closely to know if you're up titrating. I feel like one of the big failures, especially with insulin, is not up titrating. Absolutely, it's 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 a drug that needs uh, that needs to be adjusted. Although, you know, not as closely as as epinephrine, but it does seem like there are some people who who won't respond to the lower doses. And so you've got her on the insulin, and then you know she um, she seems to be a little sleepier, and and she's breathing a little harder, and her sad is. You know, it's annoying to practice at altitude <laughs> because no one's sat as 100, but, you know, her sat has gone from 98 to 96 and she's breathing a little harder. So you do your lung evaluation. I mean, I would still argue for the, still take a look at the heart, to look at the IVC, but in lungs, you're looking, number one, say if you look at the anterior chest, both sides, you're looking for lung sliding. Also, when you're looking and you get that image of what we call the bat sign, which is lung, plural lung, or rib, plural rib, I should say, you're looking for something called B-lines. B-lines are vertical lines that start at the plural interface and go all the way down to the edge of the screen when you're looking at the ultrasound machine. And if you're seeing zero to three, that can be normal. Three to seven suggests an interstitial process, and greater than seven suggests full-on pulmonary edema. Uh, And the reason I make some of those distinguishing factors is 
just because someone has beelines doesn't mean this is fluid overload. There can be all different reasons. This could be ARDS. This could be someone that walks around with pulmonary fibrosis. This could be someone with an infectious process. So again, emphasizing that matching your ultrasound findings with the patient in front of you. Uh, in the case of it being fluid with the increased work of ble uh, breathing and a little bit of relative hypoxia, you also want to look at the diaphragms to see if there's a fluid collection above the diaphragm, pleural effusions. And if anybody wants to see what these look like, just ultrasound someone that's coming in with acute decompensated heart failure. You will see these findings on ultrasound. It's a good way to learn. And Kenan, so if you saw this person and they're on insulin and you kind of, we already kind of pointed, they're not doing better, which, uh, what would you supplement your insulin with? Well, I think that's where this seems like it would really help a lot. Am I looking at someone who doesn't have much squeeze, uh, in which case we're going to definitely go with an, an inotrope. Um, if on the other hand, maybe it's someone where we're looking and the squeeze actually isn't bad, but they're still not they're still hypotensive, they're cool, they're clammy. Then we're looking maybe at a little bit more of a vasodilatory uh, effect. So maybe then I'll reach for some norepinephrine, something that's going to be a little more peripherally acting. Um, I still, like I said, I, I tend to shy away from things like vasopressin or, or phenylephrine. Although, again, methylene blue should be primarily a, a peripherally acting agent, and at least in, in a case, it's been uh, it's been something that was really the only effective therapy. So I think it's going to guide me. Am I thinking more peripheral? Am I thinking more central, uh, more um, cardiac, cardioactive drug? What am I going to try and target? And, and can I use some of the physiology, to, uh, pharmacology to my advantage? And then, uh, so you're doing your ultrasound. You want to look in the stomach to see how many pills there are. So we've all looked at this literature. There are case reports about using ultrasounds to look for pills in the stomach. Imaging the stomach is definitely doable. Uh, left upper quadrant, when you're doing your splenal renal view, you can often see fluid in the stomach. But um, I don't think we're at the point that that's going to be high yield for a patient like this. We're not saying no, but we're saying uh, not the top application we'll use ultrasound for. Okay. I agree. Yeah, and certainly, it, it's it, if anything, you mentioned at the start of this, can I guess who's going to get sick? And, and if you can get a look at that heart and, it, and maybe it does, you're able to detect there is a little bit of a change before their, heart, their blood pressure totally tanks. It's, it seems like that's, you know, that, that can't be a bad thing. How about give me two things that as a non-ultrasound uh, savvy person, you mentioned using the, the parasternal, which you've convinced me, and I do. What can I do? Are there any things I should be doing with the knobs or dialy things to uh, to make better pictures? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think optimizing your image always helps you interpret the image better because you can get better quality image. So I think making sure that you're in the correct mode. So you don't want to be looking at the cardiac, uh, cardiac ultrasound being in the abdominal mode because the machine automatically changes the settings and the physics of the machine. So you optimize your image depending on what you're looking at. So being in the cardiac mode when you're looking at the heart is crucial. Um, to get a good image, making sure you have the appropriate depth. So making sure you have about about a quarter to space of the end of your screen, sort of like wasted wasted space, we call it. So your focus is right there in the middle. And that way your focus is not way at the top or off the screen. You get your area of interest right in the middle that'll optimize your image. And then also making sure your gain is adequate. Most machines have um, either adequate, not too high, not too low. Most machines will have sort of an auto gain setting, and that will allow you to get sort of the optimum gain to see everything you want to see. In the heart, you're really looking at the valves, the ventricles, and you want those clearly outlined. So having the appropriate gain for that will help. And I think 
one of the most important things really when you're looking at the heart, especially in the parasternal long, that lingula tends to get in your way and it causes a lot of artifact. So really optimizing your patient position if they can roll on their left side helps get that artifact out of the way. So, And if the patient is intubated, does that change your interpretation of any of these things? For the parasternal lung, it does not. Um, it changes a lot of things for the IVC, and that's why we look at alternative measures when we're looking at the uh, volume status, really. For an intubated patient, it really changes the game. Um, when you're looking at the lungs, it can change it partially, but not as much as it does for the IVC. But the heart really stays the same. That's, that's something that stays the same. And I'll just yeah. say something that probably a lot of listeners are thinking. When someone is intubated, you can't really get them onto the left lateral decubitus easily. So... If you can't get a good window left, left, sorry, parasternal long, then you would go back to trying to maximize your apical four or your subxiphoid uh, because you can't really turn them easily. It angers the nurses. Yes. Ultrasound is always present, and we like to pretend that it's inconvenient, and so then we tend to not use it on patients. And I think one of the reasons why. Though with a trauma patient, the first thing we do is grab the ultrasound. And with a tox patient, the first thing we do is not grab the ultrasound. It's just because we've taught ourselves not to. And definitely it's something that I'm going to try to integrate more into my practice uh, when I see overdose patients who have potentially cardioactive effects. And so I think we should end it there with us imploring you to integrate ultrasound into your management of the poisoned patient. It's an area where you can do a lot of good for your patients and advance our knowledge in this area. I want to thank Drs. Lewis, Wilson, and Hurd. Of note, Dr. Lewis has since moved to working at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, and we wish her well. I'm Matt Zuckerman. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Talks Now. Reach out to us at TalksNow.org, our Twitter feed, especially with Talks Ultrasound Video at TalksNow, and leave comments at the iTunes store. Talks Now is made possible by support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 